0: Welcome to The Global Connection, at Tel Aviv University podcast. Journey with us as we discover how TAU's academic community and friends are engaging with and helping to shape this ever-changing world. Hi, welcome to The Global Connection. I am your host for today, Dr. Anna Suchiecki. I am very excited to have two wonderful individuals joining me today. Uh, Naomi Brenner is a professor from the Department of Near Eastern and South Asian Languages and Cultures at The Ohio State University. Her work focuses on modern Hebrew literature and culture with a specific focus on translingualism, or the way in which Jewish literary texts, whether in Hebrew, Yiddish, Arabic, or English, circulated and responded to each other across languages. And we also are joined by Tamar Soufran, a professor emerita uh, from the Department of Hebrew Language and Semitic Languages uh, at Tel Aviv University, where she was most recently the chair of the Chaim Rosenberg School of Jewish Studies. Her area of expertise is linguistics with a focus on the study of meaning and meaning relations in language, and in particular, the language structures and processes unique to Hebrew and Hebrew poetry. Welcome to you both.
1: Thank you. you.
0: From my understanding, uh, you are both here at a conference uh, with NAF, which is the National Association of Professors of Hebrew. So you've been to a couple sessions. Are you enjoying it so far?
1: Definitely, you know, this is a, a really nice opportunity to bring together people who work on both Hebrew language and Hebrew literature from many different historical periods. And uh, as someone who works in the United States, we don't always have this sort of opportunity all that often.
2: The conference takes place every year in another place. And this time we are uh, blessed to have it in Israel, uh, though we missed the going abroad after three years, I think, of. Uh, the the virus and the epi- pandemic so we had it the conference on Zoom okay. which was less intimate and less uh, less I think of even less effective but it's a very old conference started from professors of Hebrew at the beginning to talk to each other about peda, peda- pedago- ped- pedag- mm-hmm. pedagogy. Pedagogy. <laughs> okay and uh, and it kind of Got volume when Hebrew literature entered, and Hebrew linguistics and rabbinics and 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 uh, Bible studies. So now it's became a very big conference. Okay,
0: wonderful. And and I agree, such a nice thing to be back in person, right? After the years we went through with COVID and doing everything virtually. Um, so I'm glad to hear the conference is going well so far. Um, And as you mentioned, uh, it's a unique opportunity to bring together scholars and experts in Hebrew, the language, as well as the literature from around the world together. And so even right here we have um, Tamara, you're from Israel. And as you mentioned, Naomi, you're from the United States. And then in terms of fields, we were also bringing together linguistics with more literary theory. Um, so, so maybe I'll ask you a little bit about that because you do come from diverse fields in academia. So, in your own words, can you tell me a little bit about the research that you do?
1: Sure. Um, my background is in comparative literature. Um, that's where my training was for my doctorate. And uh, while well, I teach more broadly than that, because I teach at a large uh, public university at the United States in the United States. Um, But my interests for my research are very much on Jewish multilingualism and what the fact that historically Jews spoke many different languages, often individuals spoke many different languages, how that impacted both literary production, so what languages they wrote in, how they wrote, how they moved in between languages, but also literary circulation, how texts moved around with their writers. If you look throughout much of the 20th century, which is the period that I focus on, you see radical movement, migration of Jews from place to place. Um, And so how that is registered, um, both in terms of literary language, but also literary texts. Okay, thank you. And Tamar? I'm basically a philosopher.
2: I started as a philosopher of language, but already with a very deep interest in Hebrew. So I slowly turned into focus on Hebrew text and the amazing development of the Hebrew, the revival of Hebrew, which we kind of say, not revived, but came back Because it it never died, Uh, there were there were texts all the time uh, during even the 500 years, but the amazing um, phenomenon of uh, coming into a a native language, and a poetic language and a scientific language it's it's an amazing uh, phenomenon. So there's a lot to 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 do research on, and uh, I'm I feel myself as a teacher. I have many I've I've mentored like over 30 master and doctoral students with various uh, various subjects, and I'm still doing it after retirement, and I give one course, I'm, I'm volunteering in my own department, I give one course with a very difficult name, it is called in Hebrew, Safa Veshira Mabat Me Balshanot which means language and poetry, a view from cognitive linguistics. Which is uh, kind of holding four stones in your hands and trying to combine them. Okay. But it's very interesting and very rewarding too. I I feel young when I have
0: this very capable young people next to me and doing research. That's one of my favorite things about uh, working with a university is the students, right? And um, their brilliance and their enthusiasm and. Curious, very and and open to new ideas, so it's it's really Mm enthusiasm. So I am quite new here. Uh, I am learning Hebrew. Um, I'm very much at the beginning, but um, for me, what I know of the language is it's one of the most interesting languages in the world. Um, So especially when you consider uh, that history of. it's years as primarily a sacred language, and then the late 18th century becoming more and more of a literary language, and then today it, it's something I use when I order coffee or you know pick up my groceries or go to the bank. Um, and you do it naturally because it's it's a mother tongue. Yeah, Back. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for both of you, again, you're coming from different traditions, but um, could you talk a little bit? Based on your research of what the uniqueness of the Hebrew language really means to you,
1: why don't you start? start I'm start.
2: Whenever you you take even one word, it is full of associations, connotations. Take, take take for example the the word makom, just place or area, but it is it goes back to to the holy right and. Uh, it, it, Whenever you do it, I'll, ta- I'll talk about my own uh, lecture yesterday. It was a session for uh, linguists looking at at uh, literary texts. So I, my student talked about two Hebrew poets, Riona Volach, which is very known, and we had one talking about her in the literary section, and uh, Leah Ayalon, which is, she doesn't want to have her pictures, nobody knows her, although she had like over ten Poetic, poetry books and very good uh, uh, critics, but uh, both of them are very unique in breaking syntax, which makes their poetry very very obscure. So we are looking for other ways of reading it, like reading non-linearly. To my my um, my dissertation title was semantic fields. So now I'm using it as a as a system to. Decipher uh, this, this or interpret very difficult poetry, with uh, w- while you're looking at the at, at the lines that uh, connect words in fields, and then the connection and the relationship between the fields. All, all of a sudden, there is interpretation. So this is what my student talked to, about. I myself took a very, a very. Um, it, I mean, The name of my uh, subject was Dechisut, which means condensing, condensed uh, Hebrew uh, construct, especially the Paul constructs, which are very, very poetic. Like uh, Leah Goldberg says, Streets that are stricken by love. When you would just make it very simple in English, but in Hebrew it's very, very. Condensed. So this is just one example, but it goes back to the sixth century when Yanai, the poet in Israel, said about us that we are glumei gush. If you ask an in, in average Israeli what is glumei gush, they'll never know what it means because it goes back to a midrash. This is a good example for you to, for the layers. A glumei gush, it means that God took us and made a golem, a, a, a person from a gush, from, from a piece of dirt or earth. So it became, we are gloomy gush, in a passive voice. So uh, this is, again, it's a, I think it's a good example of how Hebrew is multi-layered and very uh, poetic in its own nature. And it's amazed me that every generation we have new poets with new uh, rule-breaking um, methods and, and uh, creativity. Thank you, Tamar,
1: Naomi. I think for me, there's so many different ways to answer your question, but let me let me give one, which is um, I'm really interested in intersections between history and culture, um, specifically history, the kind of the, the history of Hebrew and Hebrew culture, and literary texts. And so, for me, it's really fascinating to look to one historical moment or one historical period, which you could say you could take, for example, the the 19th century, where you do have writers and readers of Hebrew. Um, but fortunately no one speaks Hebrew. It's not a spoken language. And what amazes me is within the span of just a couple decades, if we want to take, you know, the late, uh 19th century so the 1880s the 1890s and by the early decades of the 20th century by the 1930s let's say the 1940s you have a language in which people are still writing are still reading that's constant but are also speaking and it's fascinating to see how that transformation is worked out in terms of literary texts one um, one of the, a, a corpus of texts that I spoke about, one text in particular earlier today, um, is uh, trashy fiction, uh, what's also called popular literature, or non-canonical literature. And there we can really see this transition between, um, you know, in the 19th century, there's very little of this kind of popular fiction in Hebrew because people don't read in Hebrew. They'll read in Yiddish, they'll read this sort of stuff in Ladino, in Judeo-Arabic, in Russian, was- in German holy and (laughs) sublime exactly and so it's really fascinating to trace this transformation historically to a point in the 1930s in which of course hebrew is going to have its own you know uh entertainment fiction or trashy fiction and things like that so uh, lots more there um, but we can see lots of unique elements of Hebrew story throughout time
2: okay what's interesting is the way that you had to create uh, the 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 uh, personas in the in the prose they have to speak and there is no spoken, so Mendeley was one of the big uh, influence uh, on imitating Yiddish uh, Yiddish uh, um, idioms and uh, way of expressions into Hebrew, but purifying it, making it very very Hebrew. I, I want to give you an example. When you want to say that you touch something very delicately, and you use the gloves, do you know the expression? I think so. You, have, you, you want to treat something very delicately, you say it. <laughs> 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 With, uh, and, but in Yiddish it's mit zaydeni, uh, hand, hand whatever. But in Hebrew it says shel <laughs> meshu. The bet is Hebrew. While he translated, but he, he kind of make it very pure Hebrew. So he is one of the sources that we, when we speak, we can say or, um, in Kashkeshli, or It came back from Yiddish, from spoken Yiddish, because Yiddish was spoken for a very long time, okay. in the 19th century, 9th century. So Hebrew was Yiddish was alive and Hebrew was not, and it's Bialik who called them like a the kind of sisters that held each other during the during the times when one flourished and the other was a servant, and then they changed the change roles. So it's the whole the whole um, process is very interesting.
0: I love that image of two languages as sisters. This is a delicate way to put it because there is one researcher who.
2: They called it the I think it's Vialik, came from Vialik, the 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 lady and the servant, and they kind of changed places. One was the lady and the other served it. And because there are many Hebrew words in Yiddish, right, and Aramaic words from Hebrew, through the Talmud came to the to the Yiddish, and then it came
1: back to Hebrew. You know, there's a rich literature and a really fascinating one on the relationship between Hebrew and Yiddish and and look, you can also look at Hebrew and Arabic, you can look at other languages as well. Um, But uh, there's also there was a period in time in which there was great competition between the languages too so and a war they even are a war. they are rendered as sisters sometimes as a uh, man and woman and so we've got a, a very strongly gendered element there too he as, as the masculine language the language, right, the language the language, of the, language the of the bet midrash the study house the language of the tradition and and thus you know the one who demanded respect and then yiddish as the diviber the uh, language so the the womanly language the Who word of were the not home. scholarly not educated
2: i mean they were not allowed to some of them knew only yiddish okay of the, the, okay. the, the women knew only yiddish or the other spoken language but not uh, they, they not they were not allowed to to study gemara or talmud okay so uh, but on the other hand um i mean okay that's okay you go on
1: well One thing I'll say, taking us back to the conference a bit, um, and I hope I'm not getting too far ahead of ourselves here, is something that struck me in looking at the program and some of the sessions that I've been to already is how uh, prominent uh, women writers are on this year's program. And I think that's a really important thing and it represents some trends within the field more broadly. Uh, But we were both at a panel that focused on women poets, Um, earlier today and I know there are a lot of other sessions that are looking both at men and women who have written in Hebrew and how they've done so and I think that's really important um, in terms of broadening the canon and and looking more more widely um, and more creatively at uh, many different people who over the years over the centuries have been writing in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. With your permission I would like to
2: speak about a
1: General phenomenon
2: of kind of the deteriorating of your humanities, and uh, we in here in the university we can see that the, the departments in the bachelor uh, bachelor um,
0: Program,
2: degree, degree we are getting less and less students, but it's flourishing in the other in the graduate school and doctorals. So um, I don't know if we have to people keep mourning about this uh, mm-hmm. this phenomenon of uh, not having enough uh, in- enough students in the lower degrees but we have very good researchers researchers mm-hmm. in the higher degrees we had like 200 um i mean in all humanities mm-hmm. over 400 doctoral students so this is kind of uh, hope for us
0: it, it it's very hopeful and like you mentioned um, it, it's interesting, too, to see that that change from the bachelor to the graduate level. But I wonder, um, you know, if we connect the graduate work of the humanities with, with the meaning behind studying languages, what languages can do, what they can tell us about the societies we live in, the way we evolve as individuals, um, you know, the, these are always such foundational questions, regardless of what era we're in, about it's about the way that we live and interact. And I would like to
2: tell you about a project that our um, that our present chair of the department initiated, to have a high school students coming and take uh, take mm-hmm. courses and getting points for it, mm-hmm. and sometimes even change it from the um, Bagrut for the um, the matriculation. So this is also a way to recruit new new students to an area which was, in a way, neglected in high school.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Do you you think we should be doing more with uh, younger generations in terms of teaching languages?
1: So, um, I'll reflect reflect from the perspective of someone who's teaching in the United States where there is less and less emphasis on teaching foreign languages and and that you know that's a a very broad statement and uh you know is true in some places and not in others across the united states but across higher education we have seen both um many institutions decreasing language requirements so no longer requiring students to study a foreign language or no longer requiring as much foreign language study Um, and we've also seen um, cuts uh, to the departments that teach these languages so even for students who might want to seek out these languages because they want to Um, You know, more and more, I teach at a large state university and we're fortunate to have a vibrant language program in Hebrew and many other languages. My department alone teaches more than 10 different languages, ancient and modern. Um, But more and more, we're sharing courses online. We're getting requests from other universities, especially smaller universities, who no longer hire people, um, no longer have the budget to hire people to teach language. And that's a scary thing because in the United States where so many people are not really aware of the world around them and and oblivious to uh, many things about kind of what it means to be a global citizen or part of a broader world. Um, studying foreign languages is such or just a single foreign language is such an important way not only to learn language but to have a glimpse into that culture into that Mm -hmm. world and the world more generally and being more sensitive
2: to nuances to differences between people between sources between cultures and we kind of losing it when we don't we don't emphasize Mm -hmm. I had to study three different languages apart from Hebrew in order to get my doctorate but it, it doesn't exist anymore
0: So when we started the conversation and some of what you've said about um, Hebrew language and literature, my impression is about the vibrancy of the language, uh, especially in terms of how it has evolved and continues to evolve. Um, And so I see you both as researchers who view languages as very much living um, that know whether it be new poets who find out new ways to work with language um, whether it be about new cultural intersections um, that um, move literary conversations forward Um, so for you could you talk a little bit more about um, some of the maybe tomorrow some of the biggest patterns you've you found, in terms of the evolution of Hebrew as a language, or, or the way that it, it has continued?
2: The, the most interesting thing is the way it became a native tongue. I want to tell the story about Ben Yehuda, who insisted on um, having his firstborn son, Itamar, not to hear any other language but Hebrew for the first few years. And it's an amazing thing, people say that you are, you are utilizing him, he will not be able to speak at all, if you speak to him only with a dead language. And then there's a story, very interesting story, that, they, that he was suffered suffering, Ben Yehuda was suffering from objection by especially the more orthodox, who were against reviving the holy language, and they didn't have enough food even at home, and once he came back and he saw his wife, lulling his uh, singing a, a Russian lullaby to the to the child who was three and never spoke before and he pushed her and he said, You are killing, you are murdering my son. And the boy opened his mouth and said, Forbidden mommy beat but they, but forbidden mom but daddy beat mommy in Hebrew. Asu Abba Mobit Ima was the first Hebrew um, Hebrew sentence And this man became a journalist. He knew many languages and he was a very, very broadly educated uh, journalist, Itamar Ben-Avi. And so this is a very uh, typical example of an insistence of one person. But we must insist that the the whole process could not be held by one person. Uh, There were teachers who insisted on teaching Hebrew by going to the... In my hometown, I was born in Rishon, and there was the first Hebrew-speaking uh, elementary school. And the kids came from uh, families who never spoke Hebrew, but they brought Hebrew to, ho- to the home. And we, we should you say that your mother uh, studied her mother tongue from her son. So uh, they went to the fields and they said, this is a butterfly, you should call it parpar. And this is a flower, you should call it perach. And they made books and poems, and this is how it started, at the end of the 19th century, 1885, was the first elementary school in Hebrew. So they were also in the moshavot, in the settlements in the Galilee and everywhere, there were a a group of enthusiasts who insisted on teaching Hebrew in Hebrew. And uh, later on, as a teacher in the United States, I I thought Hebrew in Hebrew. Okay. which is a very good system to teach, right? I think you do mm-hmm. it too, right? When remember them choking with which is very difficult mm-hmm. for English speakers. Mm-hmm. but um, it's a very I think it's a very um, good way to study a language just to be exposed to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, there is a lot uh, on the shoulders of parents to read to the kids and to make them I, I, I myself read, even the, the Greek mythology to my 12-year-old year old son, when the other small ones were listening because this is where you get the, the appreciation of culture, of language, of uh, its, its richness. A lot is is on the shoulders of, of parents.
0: On the shoulders of parents and families and sort of those individual connections for ensuring the... But it's a vicious influence. circle.
2: If you don't have educated parents, you will not get educated right.
0: kids. Right, right. And Na- Naomi, I know you work more with literary texts again, but um, I've, I've read a little bit of your work on bilingualism and the... Uh, the cultural conversations and literary conversations between Yiddish and um, Hebrew specifically, um, and, and you trace different movements of, um, how those interconnections and points of connection, uh, results in shifts in literary traditions in, in Hebrew. Um, So can you, can you talk a bit more about, um, some of the, the most interesting or exciting points of, of, shifting literary traditions like that you've come across?
1: Sure, you know, in fairly broad terms, um, these days, we still tend to study, we, we tend to kind of uh, isolate literatures by language. So um, I'll take my university as an example, you can study English literature, um, you can study German literature, Russian, Japanese, Hebrew, but all of these are are almost like they're silos. You, you you approach them, you learn the language if necessary, you learn a particular literary tradition, but that somehow imagines or, or pretends that literatures exist in these self-contained bubbles. And something that I think uh, a more dynamic reading of texts and and reading of the sort of history of literature shows us is that people are constantly you know, yes, they are, you take a, a a well-known writer of Hebrew literature, chances are that they are well-read in Hebrew texts that preceded them and, you know, no Bialik and no, you know, many of the classics. But I think what a comparative approach to reading literature. Um, gives us is the ability to read across boundaries and oftentimes to find that those boundaries between literature so in my work that's often between Hebrew and Yiddish um, are so much um, fuzzier or they're so much more porous than you might think so yes if we look at the early 20th century we have writers who are come to be known as Hebrew writers Agnon being a very famous one Um, And you have writers who come to be known as Yiddish writers. But that tends to obscure or or encourage us to forget, when we only study those writers in the context of a single literary tradition, how much contact there was (coughs) between writers who almost all of them spoke more than one language and read in more than one language, but also experimented themselves as writers in a variety of different languages too.
0: So, again, you're at the conference and there are people from all over the world who are there as well. So so can you talk about the global community of scholars right now that you find yourselves in? Is it a close-knit community? Um, you know, do you do you really work together on things? Is it every time there's a conference, you go and you you meet some new people? Um,
2: what's- you just said it. I, I mentioned in the session that Loa, who gave the talk, I heard her, her last year and went to buy the two books by the poet she was poetess she was speaking about so there is a connection and we become friends and uh, but um, the the covid kind of cut cut uh, some of it
1: now we are working on connecting it back I don't know much about the history of this organization, which is titled National Association of Professors of Hebrew. It's because which I, it started in America. Right. So I assume that mm-hmm. National was imagining a kind of American focus to it. And what I think is brilliant about this conference is that I mean, the national still hanging out there in the title, um, but it doesn't actually translate to reality, which is to say I was part of a panel that had uh, one person from uh, who teaches Hebrew in uh, Warsaw, University of Warsaw. Um, myself and one other person were at American universities, another person at Israeli university. And I think that is really the gift of a conference like this. Um, like Tamar said earlier, Um, something that I appreciate more after several years on Zoom um, than I did before. I think I took it for granted earlier. Um, But it's that opportunity to bring together people who likely, you know, paths wouldn't cross, whether it's geographically or or sometimes kind of scholarly, not just because people work on Hebrew and sun fashion doesn't necessarily mean that our work will coincide in any meaningful way. Um, and one of the best things at conferences like this, and I, I would categorize this as a, a fairly small and intimate conference in the scheme of things, is that you have the opportunity, whether it's in sessions or just when you bump into someone in the hall and you introduce themselves um, to, to connect, um, to learn more about what they're doing. You know, Maybe it's something you come back to or you'll see each other again in the future, maybe not. Um, but that to me, those are really valuable interactions. And it is very well
2: organized. Yeah. The organizers are very. They're working on it. It's, it's a it's a it's a huge and undertaking to organize such a conference and to be in touch with everybody. And there is one person. One there is a president who is kind of giving the whole uh, um, the the um, framework. But there is a person who is the uh, who really works on the relations between and, and this is. Um, Jared, who is um, very good uh, at keeping everything to work and everything to to be very exact and very and to communicate with, with, there was a problem with my fee or whatever. He is there, so in a way it's intimate. And I think you are right it, it's less than, mm-hmm.
1: but there are huge conferences <clears throat> when you get lost, and this is not one of them. That is true, and I mean, I think here, as a participant, I'll, I'll grab the opportunity just to thank you know this this partnership between NAF and Tel Aviv University because I think well we're we're on day two of three, but uh, this this is a very well organized um, and and thoughtful conference. And in that's a way, they... I miss going
2: abroad, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I it was in, uh, I think I think at eighteen. It, it, in 18 I mean four years ago it was in Amsterdam and then it was in Boston mm-hmm. so and mm-hmm. way back we were in UCLA so it's, it's an opportunity to see the world too okay
0: well tomorrow, Naomi I want to thank you very very much for taking the time out of the conference to come chat with me about Hebrew language and literature for a little bit and I I hope you enjoy the next panel that you go to and and the rest of the conference. I became friends with Nomi.
2: I didn't know her before. (laughs) Thanks to you and thanks for the good questions. Wonderful. Thank you both. Goodbye.